0: I'm gonna make an outrageously bold claim now and probably put my foot in it. I think that what God is saying to us in the Bible passage we're looking at today is one of the single most important issues we can ever engage with. And yet I think that what God is saying to us in this passage is one of the single most ignored things in the Western church. Our passage, as many others do, addresses what it means to live like a Christian. That is what it means to grow more and more like Jesus. This is called sanctification. When somebody becomes a genuine follower of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit comes and lives in them and will steadily make them more godly over a period of time. One of the best books that I've read on this is simply called Holiness. It was written in the 1800s by J.C. Ryle, an English bishop. Sanctification is so clearly the mark that somebody is actually a Christian that Ryle says this, where there is no holy living, there is no Holy Spirit. Wow, this is unbelievably important. So let's dive into our passage. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 to 32. Chapter 4 verse 1 started a new section where the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, introduced how the Ephesian Christians were to respond to the calling that they received. God had saved them by grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And he saved them by grace so that he could unite them into one people with Jesus as their Lord. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. I think that verse 17 summarizes chapter 4, verse 17 to 4.32 no longer live like the Gentiles do. Gentile is a word in the New Testament that means not Jewish, but here it refers to somebody who's not a Christian either. My first heading then is how the Gentiles live. In verse 17, Paul insists that the Ephesian Christians are not to live like the Ephesian Gentiles because they're thinking is futile. It's worthless. Why is it futile? Well, look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. The Gentile thinking is futile because they are darkened in their understanding where I live, power cuts happen not quite often enough to ever get used to them. So suddenly the lights will go out and I'm used to there being lights and I'm unprepared. And so I just hold my hands out in the dark and fumble about for some kind of thing that's going to give me light. Helpless. That's the Gentiles. Now, when we read Paul's letters, he often has a flow of thought that it's important to follow. And we see that in verse 18. The flow of thought, goes like this. The Gentiles harden their hearts. They stubbornly reject living God's way. Because they harden their hearts, they become ignorant. And because they're ignorant, they become darkened in their understanding. And in this darkened state, they are separated from the life of God. This is incredibly serious. Because for those separated from the life of God, God's wrath, his fierce anger burns against them. We've seen this already in chapter 2 verse 3. Judgment in hell awaits those separated from the life of God. Paul goes on in verse 19 to tell us what the end result of this dark downward spiral is. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. The Gentiles have no sensitivity anymore. They're too far gone. They don't know what's right or wrong. They've fully given themselves over to sensuality. They do whatever they want, and they have no shame. They indulge in it. They love it like a dog rolling around in filthy water in a park. They indulge in every kind of impurity. They creatively think of new ways to stain themselves with their sinfulness. They're greedy for more and more and more of it. Sounds extremely judgmental, doesn't it? How dare Paul say this about anyone? But Paul isn't being judgmental here. He's not saying that some wicked people over there are like this and isn't it wonderful that we're over here so much better than them? No. He's saying that this is how every single one of us starts out. Chapter 2 verse 3 told us this. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Verses 17 to 19 describe what I was like before I became a Christian. These verses describe what you were like before you became a Christian. And if you haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus, the offensive truth is that these verses describe what you are like. I get how outrageous that might sound. Please don't just switch off and refuse to listen to the rest because all of us who have chosen to follow Jesus openly admit that that is exactly what we were like. The first step in choosing to follow Jesus and embracing all the genuine riches that there are in knowing God is to admit that we are sinners, that we reject God and can't sort the problem out on our own. There'll be more on this in a moment. So that's how the Gentiles live. Second heading then, how the Ephesian Christians were taught to live. Look at verse 20 with me. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, this is beautiful news. Don't miss this. Remember what verses 17 to 19 said? That we all lived like the Gentiles live? Verse 22 says that was our former way of life. That was our old self. A fundamental identity swap has taken place. How? How could we who lived like the Gentiles change so radically? Verse 21. The Ephesian Christians heard about Christ. What did they hear? They heard the gorgeous truth of the gospel of grace, that we do not and cannot live for God in such a way that he could forgive our sins against him, that because of this, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a morally flawless life, that as he was executed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, a great swap happened. Jesus got all of our sin. And God's fierce wrath against sin poured out on him. And we got Jesus's morally perfect life. And so we can be forgiven because of Jesus's finished work on the cross. Jesus was raised to life again three days later to show that he had done it and he now reigns as Lord over the whole universe as well as Savior. Amen. And so if you're here, and you've not yet chosen to follow Jesus, that is open to you today. If we admit that we live like the Gentiles, believe what I've just explained, and commit to following him for the rest of our lives, all I'm going to say can be true of you today. That fundamental identity swap has taken place Verse 24, we have a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When I became a Christian, the old self was put off once and for all. God took this rotten, stained and vile t-shirt off me and he put on me a clean, pure and shining top. And now my task is to get rid of all the things I do that belonged to the old T-shirt rather than the new one. Embarrassingly, last year I'd explained this to the people I was reading the Bible with um, by quoting from the British rapper Scepter. He said, act like a waste man, that's not me. It might not be pretty, but it is exactly what's going on here. We're no longer to sin because that's not us anymore. Transformation happens first. As we become Christians and our identity is flipped upside down, then behavior changes out of this. But behavior must change. Otherwise, there's no evidence that that first transformation ever happened. Do you get that? Now, what I want us to get is that sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, takes effort. That's not a very popular thing to say. Verse 22 put off your old self. Verse 24 put on the new self. Both of those are active things that we do, it's not automatic. Now, don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that somebody can be saved through living a good life. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. But Richard Foster, one of the best and warmest authors I've read, says really helpfully, effort is not the opposite of grace. Works is. And being a bit more specific, in holiness, J.C. Ryle puts it like this. In justification, that's when we're declared innocent by God, our own deeds have no place at all and simple faith in Christ is the one thing needful. In sanctification, our own deeds are very important and God, God tells us to fight and pray and watch and work hard. So hear me really clearly. You are not saved by anything you do. But as verse 22 says, you put off your old self. And verse 23, you are made new in the attitude of your minds by working at it. Yes, it is the Holy Spirit that does this. But we partner with the Holy Spirit by reading the Bible, through praying, through praising God for the gospel, through being filled with the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle provocatively says this to challenge us. Throw away forever the vain thought that if a believer does not grow in grace, it is not his fault. And friends, if you're a Christian, this sanctification isn't optional. It's not just for church leaders. It's not just for the keen few. No, if we don't commit to it, We're in danger of falling away. Do we wake up every morning determined to put off the old self and put on the new self? This is our goal as Christians. And you'll get comments both inside and outside the church. You'll get laughed at by the Gentiles who think that you're wasting your life. But you'll also get avoided by some of those in the church who will call you too intense and encourage you to lighten up a bit. I've definitely been told both those things by both groups. But my dear brothers and sisters, it's worth it. It's hard work, but it's joyful work. The more I love and enjoy God, the easier it gets, and the more I want to spend my time doing it. Verse 23. The Ephesian Christians are to be made new in the attitude of their minds. A crucial part of putting off the old self and putting on the new self is to be constantly renewing the way that we look at the world. Notice the school type language here. Verse 20, you learned. Verse 21, you heard. You were taught in him in accordance with the truth. In our circles, we often say things like, We don't just want head knowledge, we want heart knowledge and I guess that's true but we must have head knowledge. We must have our minds renewed in order to put off the old self and we do this by listening to God's word, the Bible. We read it daily and it shapes our thinking Like putting on a new pair of glasses, we start to see the world through scripture and filter everything said to us through the Bible. And we see everything clearly as it really is in God's eyes. And notice the you throughout is plural. Paul isn't writing to one person, but to a church This is so crucial. As I was preparing this sermon, it really challenged me because I really do love the disciplines of praying and studying God's word on my own. And that's vital and it's good and we must do it. But this challenges me. The sanctification is a group activity. The Western world is almost certainly the single most individualistic society that has ever existed. I really mean that. And so I read our passage through that lens rather than through the Bible's lens. I had to pray about this and process it. We need to join small groups of other Christians so that we can hold each other accountable for our sin. So that we can help each other listen to God's voice as he speaks to us in the Bible. So that we can carry each other through all the hardness of life so that we can work together to explain the good news about Jesus to those that aren't yet Christians. Heading three, no longer live like the Gentiles, the examples. These examples show how we're to relate to other Christians because of our new identity. So I want you to imagine a rock. A sculptor's job is to come and make a statue out of it. So the sculptor looks at this rock and he doesn't just see the rock, he sees the wonderful possibility that this rock, with enough cutting away at it with a chisel, could be an amazing statue. So he pulls out his chisel and he gets to work. And as we get down into the details this passage brings up, it could hurt us, it could sting, like the chisel cutting away at the rock. But with every hit of the chisel, the rock becomes less and less like the bland boulder and more and more like something of beauty, what it was meant to be. So as I've been preparing for this sermon, I've been praying for us all that God would show us our sin. God has done with me. I've been praying this so that we can put off the old self better for our Lord. Verse 25 then. Therefore, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We cannot lie as Christians. And we probably get that. We probably read over verse 25 and thought, phew, I'm fine. But sin's more subtle. Sin lies to us. Personally, I exaggerate, I overstate some things. And that's sinful. It's not speaking truthfully to my brothers and sisters. I miss things out when telling stories to make me look better. When I'm telling other Christians about the evangelistic conversations I'm having, I'm tempted to make them sound more fruitful than they actually are. I downplay my sin when I'm talking to my Christian mates that I'm accountable to. But verse 25 gives the reason why I shouldn't. We're one body. Chapter 1 verse 10 told us of God's great master plan to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And how can we lie to those who we are so intimately connected to with the same life purpose? Verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold is being angry ever okay? Well, this passage says yes, if it's a right hatred of, of sin and injustice. <laughs> but let's be honest, that's just not the way that you and I get angry. The number of times I've heard this passage used to justify foolish, childish, and selfish anger We're wired up to justify our actions and to actually believe that we are always in the right. We get angry because things simply don't go our way and we don't like how others treat us. Every Disney film tells you to follow your heart. The Bible tells you that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. In Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Jerry Bridges has written a brilliant book called Respectable Sins that I fully recommend and he says this, deal with your anger swiftly but above all don't go to bed with it still in your heart. At best anger is sin and at its worst it leads to even greater sins. Don't let what God is saying in this passage make you feel uncomfortable and not do anything about it. Deal with it today We must. The alternative is far too dangerous. Verse 28. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Downloading music that we haven't paid for. Eating food that belongs to our housemates. Parking without paying. Taking from our parents' wallet. Taking signs on a night out. Friends, let's not pretend that these things aren't stealing. But the wonderful motivation not to steal, but to work in verse 28 is so that we can provide lavishly for those in need in our church family. Sanctification doesn't make us cold and withdrawing and unattractive. Being godly is warm and rich and involves action. Verse 29 Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit the one who listens. For me, I think that chapter 4, verse 29 is one of the most convicting passages in all of Scripture. Because at the very least, it means that we shouldn't say some things. We shouldn't swear. There's nothing about swearing that honors Christ. We shouldn't make sexual jokes like that's what she said that downplays the purity and glory of sex. There's more on that to come in chapter five. But also I've got a dark sense of humor. I think a number of times I say things that make fun of other people's struggles and that's sinful. I want to be called out on it if I say something along those lines, genuinely. It means no gossip, no unkind words. And we dress unwholesome talk up in all sorts of ways, don't we? Zach Eswine, a fantastic author and pastor, says this. A community of Jesus behind closed doors is tempted to whisper dark speculations in meetings opened with prayer. But it's so much more than just what we don't say. Every single word of mine is to make other Christians more like Jesus. How frequently before and after a church service are we talking to one another in a way that builds others up? Not just how are you doing, although that's important, but explicitly talking about our relationship with God. Ask questions that will help others mature. How's your daily devotional time going? What sins are you trying to put off at the moment? What are you enjoying most about God? How are you going to respond to the sermon? Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 30 is a throwback to chapter one, verse 13 to 14. And here we're told that our sin against one another in the church grieves the Holy Spirit. He despises it. Christ died for a righteous and holy church. The Spirit longs for the holiness of his beloved people. Sin is an abstract. It's a personal affront to God. Verses 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Bitterness. Sure, you've forgiven that person in the church, but you know, you still hold it against them. You still bring it up in your mind. You still dwell on it. You still don't like them. Verse 32. Friends, being church means getting close enough to get hurt by one another. And usually not by sin, actually, although definitely from sin simply through being different. And in our genuine hurting and pain from misunderstanding and mistakes with those in church, remember that in Christ, God forgave you. Be kind and compassionate to those in the church because Jesus is perfectly kind and compassionate to you. In Christ, God forgave me whilst I was a sinner, living like the Gentiles. He had no other reason to other than that he loved me and it would bring him glory. And if I could be forgiven by Christ for the depths of my sin, I can forgive anyone for the things they've done against me. Amen. So we should feel convicted by this passage. And I really do appreciate a lot of it is hard to hear. I found it very hard to hear. But if we're trusting in Jesus, we don't need to feel condemned. Jerry Bridges says this wonderfully. We cannot begin to deal with a particular manifestation of sin, such as anger or self-pity, until we first openly acknowledge its presence and activity in our lives. So I need the assurance that my sin is forgiven before I can even acknowledge it, let alone begin to deal with it. Brothers and sisters, we do have the assurance that our sin is forgiven. Praise God. So we can acknowledge it and we can begin to deal with it. No longer live like the Gentiles do. Together, let's commit to putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Because God has already forgiven us through Christ. Amen.